It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 374 for January 5th, 2014. This week, if Santa brought you a new camera, maybe you're looking for a way to improve your videos. Coming off a strong year for sales, tablet computers are expected to sell well again this year. So far, my biggest surprise is how useful small tablets are. The United States continues to fall further behind the rest of the world when it comes to internet speeds, but we continue to pay more for slower service. In short circuits, two million websites offline on New Year's Eve. A German news magazine says the NSA plants bugs and malware. Netflix testing a lower-priced streaming plan. And New York City has a clever way to let residents know where snowplows are. If you have a smartphone, you have a video camera. If you have a point-and-shoot camera, you have a video camera. If you have a digital SLR camera, you might have a video camera. Some people even buy video cameras so they can have a video camera. Anybody who has a new digital video camera or who wants to make better use of an existing one should take a look at Adobe's Premiere Elements 12, which was released late last year. You already know that the Elements applications are the low-cost versions of Adobe's premium applications. The interfaces are modified to make them easier for people who don't use them every day. Some people refer to these as being the dumbed-down versions. But it seems to me that anybody who has applied that epithet has never used the applications. If anything, they're smartened-up versions, because it's difficult to make complex operations video editing, for example, simple. That is exactly what Premiere Elements does. It makes video editing accessible to people who don't know anything about editing video. This year's improvements are in six specific areas. Guided views for new users, auto smart tone, more film looks, scores and sound effects, motion tracking, and video adjustment layers. You can think of guided edits as built-in tutorials that use your video and audio files. These are the things professionals would call assets. Instead of having to work through exercises with somebody else's sample files, you'll be able to create your own edited videos as you learn how the program works. The quick view is the way to accomplish a lot with virtually no effort, but if that's the only option users had, they would quickly outgrow the program. Expert View, which opens up a wider range of program functionality, is where you'll go when you've learned some of the finer points of editing. And if you outgrow that mode, well, then it's time to move on to Adobe Premiere and all of its additional components. The Guided View is available in both Quick and Expert interfaces. Auto Smart Tone is an automated color correction tool. If the video you have is too light, too dark, the colors are too dull... Well, this is the feature that will improve the video. The key word here is improve. Nothing can make an inferior video shine. But it can sometimes save what would otherwise be an unusable shot. You don't have to take just the correction that you get automatically, either. 
A controller allows you to fine-tune the results, and even better, it'll then remember your preferences for later use. Premiere Elements had film looks before, and several additional options have been added under the effects menu this year. When applied to a video clip, the result is a different kind of appearance. The options are Animated, Trinity, Cross Process, and Yesteryear. Those are the new ones. There are lots of others that have been there for quite a while. After applying the look to a specific clip or the entire project, it's possible to modify its intensity, or if you decide you don't like it, to simply delete it. Music and sound effects are key elements in theaters and on television. Premiere Elements has added more music scores and sound effects. A musical score is an audio track that can be dropped onto the video timeline. Each score includes an intro, a body, and an outro, or as Adobe calls it, an extra. In has the same meaning in both English and Latin, so they look the same. X is Latin and out is English, so take your pick there. The score changes dynamically as it's lengthened or shortened, so any score can fit the length of any video clip. Sound effects can be dropped in to make a creative point or to emphasize an action. Motion tracking is one of those really advanced things that it's surprising to see in a program this inexpensive. Motion tracking gives the user the ability to track the movement of an object in a video clip and then to attach still images or graphics or even other video clips to that moving object. The attached objects then move right along with the tracked item. This feature is really useful if you're trying to create an animation effect. And adjustment layers. These are the things that make it possible to apply identical processing effects to multiple clips. Effects applied to an adjustment layer affect all of the layers below it, and the effects can be grouped on a single adjustment layer. Adjustment layers can be applied in both quick and expert modes. So how easy is it? Well, we spent Christmas Day at my younger daughter's house. Although most of my camera use that day was for still photographs, the point-and-shoot camera that I had brought along also had a video mode. So I brought back about three and a half minutes of video. The first minute consisted of some test shots that weren't usable, so I had two and a half minutes of video to work with. My objective was to be able to create a 30-second video. The camera has an autofocus mechanism, but it doesn't really work very well when the clip opens with an extreme close-up followed by pulling the camera back. On the other hand, when I started with a wider shot and moved the camera in, it seemed to work better, but still not perfect. The upshot of all this is that I would have to discard parts of most of the clips. And there was no usable audio, but that was by design. Quick Mode provides the most basic view of the video. You see just a simple sequence of clips. The width of the clip shows the relative length of the clip. Expert Mode provides a timeline, multiple video tracks, additional audio tracks, and tracks for narration and music. The clip preview shows the first and last frames in the clip if sufficient space exists to allow it to do that. The guided view, as I mentioned, works with both quick and expert modes. Click the guided view icon in the center at the top of the screen and a large panel opens to describe various options that you can choose. I selected the one that explains how I can trim the unwanted parts from the beginnings and ends of my clips. Instructions are provided in the upper left corner of the program 
and what I've started to call a helping hand appears to show the user exactly which controls need to be modified. The helping hand consists of an arrow pointing at what you're supposed to see, and usually a yellow bounding box to even better highlight it. After trimming the clip so that the entire program would run approximately 30 seconds, I turned off the audio from the video tracks and dropped one of Adobe's scores onto the soundtrack. The default intensity seemed a bit much for the video, so I tried other settings until arriving at one that seemed to fit the images best. Setting the intensity toward the right produces a harder driving sound, and moving it toward the left produces a more gentle sound. So I created three versions of the video, all 30 seconds long. The first, no fade in, no fade out, no transitions between any of the scenes, just your basic video. For version B, I added a fade in at the beginning, a fade out at the end, and some crossfade transitions where they seemed appropriate in the video. And for version C, I wanted to try one of the film looks. Now promise me you won't do this at home. I added a comic book effect to two of the clips that doesn't really belong there, but I put it in just to show how easy it is. The bottom line is five cats. This is video editing for people who aren't video editors. This is not the application that a professional video producer would want, and if Adobe had targeted professionals with this release, it would earn a single cat, if that. Premiere Elements 12 continues in the Elements tradition of being extremely easy to use. And in keeping with Adobe's philosophy of pushing more and more high-end features down to the consumer product line, this version provides some surprising strengths. If you're tired of looking at videos that you know could be better, take a look at Adobe Premiere Elements. It's hard to imagine a better value for a hundred bucks. Additional details are available on the Adobe website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Well, here we are. It's the second year of the tablet. Tablets are not right for everybody or for every task, but they are far more useful than I expected them to be. That applies to both the small tablets, such as the Nexus 7 that run the Android operating system, and to larger tablets from various manufacturers. These are the ones that run Windows. Perhaps my largest surprise so far has been how useful the small Android device is. As recently as five years ago, if somebody had told me that a device with a 7-inch monitor could have the same number of pixels as a large screen, 1920 by 1200, and would have nearly the speed of a desktop system, I would have doubted that anything like that could be possible before maybe 2020 or later. Well, I would have been wrong. Android devices provide five desktop pages to start with. Technically, these screens are part of the launcher, I use a third-party launcher from Nova because it allows me to create an interface that I like a little bit better than KitKat's default, and I can expand the number of apps on each page from 36 in a 6x6 matrix to 49 in a 7x7 matrix. Several other options are possible, but having 49 icons on the main page is enough for me.
At the bottom of the screen, there's a dock. It can hold another seven apps that are present on each launcher page. But Nova makes it possible to create additional docks. The default number is three, so that means overall another 21 applications very easily accessible. I use one of the launcher pages for a dashboard display that includes date, time, weather, calendar, and some Android settings that I like to have readily available. The default launcher is page 3. Two pages on the left, two on the right. Android's default doesn't allow these pages to wrap around. What that means is if I'm on page 5 and I want to be on page 1, well, the default interface would require that I swipe to the right four times to move all the way to the left. The Nova interface offers a wraparound, so if I'm on page 5 and I want to be on page 1, a single swipe to the left takes me there. I don't miss the touch interface at all when I'm using a desktop or a notebook computer, but it's hard to imagine an easier interface for a tablet, regardless of its size. And larger tablets do even more. Microsoft says that a clear winner surfaces. Isn't that a clever use of the term, surface? As desktop PCs move into the back room and bulky laptops fall out of favor with road warriors, Microsoft says, tablets and smartphones are quickly filling the gap. While tablets and smartphones offer superior portability, Microsoft says, and untethered productivity, they lack three essential features that would take productivity to the next level. Keyboards, Windows compatibility, and a touch screen experience. Microsoft, of course, points out that these are all available on Surface tablets. Microsoft's Surface tablets have received very good reviews, but they still aren't selling very well. I suspect that's going to change, though. Tablets are selling extremely well, and anybody who takes the time to review tablet specifications will seriously consider what Microsoft has to offer. My Windows tablet is not a Surface device, but that's only because the Surface Pro wasn't yet available when I decided I needed a tablet computer. I'll have to replace this one someday, and at that time, I will look very carefully at what Microsoft has to offer. The research firm, IDC, says that tablet purchases will surpass PC purchases by 2015. Growth in this part of the market surprised just about everybody in 2013, and this is likely to be repeated in 2014. Microsoft sets up the comparison between a tablet and a PC this way. You want a tablet because it's easy to carry, it delivers great digital content, and perhaps the weakest reason, it's just cool. And Microsoft says you need a PC because it offers a full desktop experience, it has the work tools you need, and IT manages it for you. The Surface tablet, of course, is positioned as a device that combines all those features. Now, all this isn't as self-serving as it might seem. In fact, it describes the current situation pretty well. Just as in the early days of the personal computer, people brought in Apple II systems to the office because they could use them to perform tasks that were difficult or maybe even impossible, with dumb terminals and mainframe computers. Today, we all have computers on our desktop, but tablets offer extended capabilities that the larger devices can't match. The Nexus 7 computer I use is perfect for a lot of tasks, but not for using Microsoft Office applications. A OneNote app does allow me to interact with that Microsoft application, and other apps make it possible to read documents created in Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. But if I want to edit them, I need a real computer that runs Office applications. Windows-based tablets do that. The advantages Microsoft cites for its Surface 2 tablets also apply to tablets from other manufacturers. 
multitasking, touch apps, custom apps, and all the desktop applications. One thing I found is that tablets make really good use of Wi-Fi connections, and one of the things that surprises me just a bit is how many Wi-Fi signals are available in residential areas. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows what I see from the bedroom of my house. Seven and sometimes ten signals in the 2.4 gigahertz band. A few years ago, most of them were open connections. Now all of them have at least the wired equivalence protocol enabled. I found a relatively clear channel for my Wi-Fi router, and there's no danger that the 2.4 GHz band will be saturated anytime soon, because in my area, channels 3 through 5, 7, 8, 10, 12, 13, and 14 are all readily available. And this isn't like the old CB days, when only one person could be on a channel at a time. Wi-Fi connections can share channels. The Android tablet can also use the 5 GHz band, though, and I'm all alone up on channel 153. I've heard people say that they think tablets are silly and that they'll never own one. I suspect that some of these people are the same ones who said, perhaps in the mid-1980s, that personal computers were silly and that they would never own one of those. Tablet computers aren't going to replace notebook computers, at least not yet. Microsoft's Surface units and some of the tablets from Dell and Lenovo could be the devices that provide the power the functionality, and the notebook-like features that make them the ones that are capable of serving both functions. And I don't see a future in which a tablet or a notebook is going to replace desktop systems for those people who need more extreme processing power or storage. But I've learned it's pretty wise never to say never. Many residents of the United States probably think that their 10 or 15 megabits per second internet speed is something to be proud of. Sorry, but it's not so. The U.S. is, at best, in the middle of the pack when it comes to speed on the internet, and we fall a bit further behind every year. Writing in the New York Times, Edward Wyatt compared San Antonio, the seventh largest city in the U.S., with Riga, Latvia former Soviet city that has about half the population of San Antonio. So San Antonio won that one by a mile, right? Well, not exactly. The average speed of internet connections in Riga is faster. Faster by about two and a half times. Users would spend 35 minutes downloading a feature film in San Antonio, while a user in Riga would get the same film in about 13 minutes. So people in Riga must have to pay really high fees, right? Again, not exactly. Wyatt notes the cost of internet connections in Latvia is about 25% of what we pay in the United States. One quarter. Part of the problem is that the United States is so large. And although more than 90% of us live in towns or cities, there's still a lot of open space that's hard cover. Wyatt notes that the World Economic Forum ranked the United States 35th out of 148 countries in internet bandwidth. Riga's average internet connection speed is 42 megabits per second. 
There are still users who poke along at maybe 8 to 10 megabits, but many users in Riga also have connections that range from 100 to 500 megabits per second. In San Antonio, the average is 16 megabits, and although faster speeds are available, they are so expensive that most families can't afford them. And the fastest connections are still nowhere near 100 megabits per second, to say nothing of 500 megabits per second. You'll find a link to the full article by Edward Wyatt on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I think it's worth taking the time to read it. In short circuits, shortly after 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, New Year's Eve, one of the largest hosting companies in the world essentially went offline. Bluehost is home for approximately 2 million websites, and all of them were down, along with Bluehost's own site and its telephone system. And yes, that included TechBiter Worldwide. The company's technicians immediately started working on the problem, and most of the sites were operational again within about five hours. The angst on Twitter was palpable, particularly among nonprofits, because for many donation-based organizations, the final day of the year is the most productive day, kind of their Black Friday. The support team on Twitter frequently said that the technicians were working on the problem, but they had no ETA for restoration of service, and at the conclusion of the event, they also weren't very forthcoming about the cause. Here's a typical response from a Bluehost support technician, and I quote, We had an issue here in our data center network causing all customers to not be able to connect to their servers for website or email service. We apologize for this issue. Our admins have been working feverishly to get everything up and running again. At this point, they have gotten some of it repaired. You may see your service back up already. If not quite yet, please wait and it will be restored to you in the next little while. Please go to our Twitter support page for updates. Well, it is remarkable that the support team was able to respond to what must have been an avalanche of comments and questions, particularly on New Year's Eve. That's a time when a lot of companies release their employees early. Clearly, this was an all-hands-on-deck situation at the Orem Data Center. But still, the company does owe the operators of its two million websites an explanation. What happened? What can be done to avoid a future event, or at least to mitigate the damage? On New Year's Day, the Twitter account was still dealing with people who continued to have trouble with their websites. Meanwhile, in Burlington, Massachusetts, the public relations team at Endurance International Group, that's the company that owns Bluehost, was busy debriefing technicians in Utah so that they could explain the outage. Lori Kotz explained that the problem was essentially the result of human error. On December 31st, she said our technicians were performing work to bring online a new switch in one of our data centers. The aim of this effort was to introduce additional networking components into this data center. It was one of several times we'd performed this process over the last month. When this device was enabled on the network, however, it caused a loop to be introduced elsewhere in the network. And as a result of that, the system's fail-safes responded by shutting down the network. The teams on-site at the data center eventually identified, isolated, and fixed the issue. The official Bluehost explanation noted that the issue did not put servers or customer data at risk. 
So if, for some reason, you were feverishly trying to log on to the TechBiter Worldwide website on New Year's Eve, now you know what happened. The German news magazine Der Spiegel, which translates to The Mirror, says that the U.S. National Security Agency operates a shadow network beside the public Internet and that the agency uses modified routers and compromised software to collect data. This report is the third in a series from Spiegel. The article describes the NSA's tapping of the fiber-optic cables that carry Internet traffic between Europe, North Africa, the Gulf states, India, Pakistan, and countries in Southeast Asia. The cables are actually owned by the French and Italian telecom agencies that are themselves partly government-owned. Spiegel quotes a top-secret report that says the NSA successfully collected network management information for the undersea cable systems by employing a website masquerade operation. The event happened in February of 2013 and allowed the NSA to collect information that shows the circuit mapping for significant portions of the network. Spiegel says the NSA works together with intelligence agencies inside and outside the United States to gain access to private networks that are not connected to the public Internet. These activities are operated by a group known as Tailored Access Operations, or TAO. And regarding compromised hardware, Spiegel says that the TAO can delay products that are being shipped and have them delivered to an NSA workshop where they're modified. Netflix is currently testing a streaming plan that knocks a buck off the monthly fee and reduces the quality of the streamed video. It's currently being offered to some users who sign up for the service's 30-day free trial. Netflix typically charges 8 bucks a month, or $7.99, and that's for a streaming plan that allows videos to be streamed in standard definition or high definition. For $7, yeah, it's really $6.99 per month, users will be limited to standard definition. Apparently, the thought is that this plan would appeal to those who want to watch videos on smartphones or very small tablets. How well it catches on with subscribers and whether it has a positive effect on the company's revenue will determine whether it moves past the test phase. Yes, these smaller devices often do have enough pixels to support high-definition video, but the screens are so small that most people really can't tell the difference between HD and SD. Hence the $12 a year savings.
central Ohio received some snow on Thursday, but nothing like what the northern part of the state and much of the east got. While reading the New York Times website, I noticed a link to Plow NYC. That's a website that gives residents information about where the snow plows are. What a great idea! This is exactly the kind of thing that a lot of cities could, and probably should, copy. I visited Plow NYC, and I was asked to fill in an address. When I'm in New York, I normally stay at a bed and breakfast on 120th Street. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website the address I filled in, 50 West 120th Street. Now, this isn't the address where I normally stay, but it is in the same block. So I'm familiar with the area, and that helped me understand what I was looking at. The map that's displayed has two options. The first shows street designations, primary, secondary, tertiary, and streets that are not the responsibility of the sanitation department. And yes, it is the Department of Sanitation that's responsible for snow removal in New York City. Who else would be better suited for the task? After all, their drivers see the streets regularly, unlike transportation workers. The second option, and this is the one I selected, shows when each street was last visited by a snowplow. The options there are less than an hour ago, 1 to 3 hours, 3 to 6 hours, 6 to 12 hours, and essentially forget about it. The trucks all have transponders and GPS units, but the Plow NYC site notes that streets with a tertiary designation might be plowed by non-GPS equipped vehicles operated by private vendors during severe weather conditions. As a result of that, their collective plowing efforts won't be reflected on the site. But overall, this is an excellent idea. It's a great use of the Internet, and this is a service other cities should consider implementing. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.